0: I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast.
1: On this episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Eric Garland. Dr. Garland is the Distinguished Endowed Chair in Research, Distinguished Professor, and Associate Dean for Research in the University of Utah College of Social Work. And he's also the Director of the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development. Um, And we're going to be talking about his work integrating mindfulness into substance-related recovery, and uh, specifically his work creating mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. All right, Dr. Eric Garland, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Excited to talk with you.
1: Great. Yeah, we are, we are very excited as well. We we both uh, are quite familiar with your work and I think that this will be a great addition to the show. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, um, before we jump into to to what you've, you know, spent the, uh spent your career working on, could you tell us a little bit about your training history?
2: Sure. Uh, so I got my bachelor's in psychology from uh, University of Delaware and with minors in anthropology and religious studies and then I went on I actually had a stint as a wilderness therapist a therapeutic wilderness guide for a while uh, working with at-risk adolescents in the mountains and I decided to get my master's in social work uh, because at the time I really wasn't interested in research and I just wanted sort of the fastest pipeline to becoming a licensed therapist. Um, And then by the time I had my license, my LCSW, so I was a licensed clinical social worker, and I decided I wanted to get back, go back to school and get my PhD, uh, it didn't make much sense to pursue clinical psychology at that time because I was already a licensed clinician. So I I went on and got the PhD in social work and um, did that at UNC Chapel Hill. And then I had a, a postdoctoral fellowship at the UNC School of Medicine in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, uh, but my, my postdoc was in integrative medicine.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've had people with different career paths and um, you know, starting earlier or later. Um, I think you're our first uh, social worker. It's really good, I think, to have you on the show and you know, to show that there are, are many different ways to, to get to, to one position a lot of different ways to develop some really, really cool
2: research. Yeah. And my career really has, has, uh, been this intersection between psychology, social work, integrative medicine and neuroscience and all of those threads kind of weaving together, uh, that that's brought me to where I am today.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's such a, I think a unique and interesting kind of path that you've taken and I think it really informs the work in such a meaningful way. And so I know your work kind of covers, right, like a lot of different areas, you know, cognition, affect, neuroscience, you know, and all kind of informing kind of mechanisms that underlie addiction and, and treatment mechanisms and so forth. And uh, But for the conversation today, we really kind of wanted to focus on your work developing mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. And so if you could, could you just tell, give us a little bit of a brief overview about, you know, how you went on to develop more and, you know, what were the kind of inspirations for it?
2: I'd love to. Thanks for asking. So more really originated from clinical experiences. I had trying to weave together, uh, my background in cognitive behavioral therapy with the mindfulness practice that had been a a personal, uh, love of mine for uh, ever since I was 18 years old. And at the time, uh, mindfulness-based interventions were just appearing on the scene. They still were not prevalent yet at all. Um, MBSR was around, MBCT was what I think was was beginning to grow um, outside the US. And so there really were not very many models for me about how to integrate mindfulness into psychotherapy. So I had to sort of figure it out on my own. And <clears throat> so as I was doing this work, uh, this real initial discovery work, at the same time, I was, I was steeping myself in theories of addiction, particularly cognitive models of addiction. And I was in, in fact really influenced by the work of Stephen Tiffany and his cognitive processing model of addiction and so that was one of the, one of the theoretical frameworks that, that influenced the, the genesis of, of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. And at the same time, I was really struck by uh, the, the work, the positive psychological research of Barbara Fredrickson, who was a mentor of mine at UNC, um, and her work showing that positive emotions had significant consequences for cognition and for behavior and health and the notion that uh, consciously and intentionally cultivating positive psychological states could be therapeutic. Of course, that, that was part of positive psychology, but again, that was another, another force that wasn't nearly as prominent as it was today. Um, <clears throat> and then lastly, uh, really starting to take a look at the, the prominent neuroscience models of addiction and uh, most notably the work of George Koob and his allostatic model of addiction, got me to think about there's this core deficit in addiction, which is the hedonic deficit. That is that as the person becomes uh, more entrenched in addictive behavior, neuroplastic changes occur in the brain such that the individual becomes hypersensitized to drug-related cues and they become insensitive to natural pleasure. They become insensitive to natural reward. And that drives them to take higher and higher doses of the drug. And so, you know, looking at that and seeing where the where the gap was, that folks struggling with substance use disorders uh, may be getting mired in, in, in this condition because they had no way to make themselves feel good naturally. Um, it, it became apparent to me that we needed an intervention that could do that, that could teach people how to how to reclaim a healthy sense of value and reward and purpose from everyday life. So, um, so those were those were different threads that I pulled together uh, to start developing more,
1: partially because of your your training and what you had been doing. Um... Mindfulness sort of appeared as as one as a as a critical link sort of in between all of those things to actually reclaim some of those natural
2: rewards. That's right. So, <clears throat> um, at the time, the the theoretical models of mindfulness really that that I was exposed to um, were emphasizing the idea that mindfulness was sort of this this non judgmental, um, non evaluative. Even some some theorists. Were, posing it as a non-cognitive uh, approach to dealing with experience. And and that, and that was that was a sort of the prevailing model of the day which actually didn't, didn't really jive with my clinical experiences uh, because when, when I would teach patients mindfulness, invariably they would report being able to see their life from a different perspective from a more from a, from a perspective in which, they were able to derive some sense of meaning from the adversity that they were facing in their lives. And mindfulness seemed to be sort of the linchpin or the catalyst to help people to reframe uh, the difficulties in their life as, as actually a source of psychological growth or purpose. And so, you know, having my own personal experience, clinical experience, um, helping people in this way and seeing seeing that mindfulness could actually help people achieve these positive mental states, it didn't, didn't really match up with the psychological theory of mindfulness Mm -hmm. at the time. And so I said to myself, well, then we got to just change the theory. (laughs) So so I did. And I, and I actually pushed forth uh, two hypotheses early on in my career that I got a lot of flack for. Um, One was, was that mindfulness promotes reappraisal. So the ability to reframe adverse life events in such a way as to see those events as as, uh as opportunities for personal growth or developing a sense of meaning in life and then the other corollary, corollary to that hypothesis was the mindful savoring hypothesis the fact that the the attentional control that one develops through mindfulness um and the, the, the positive affective state that's often produced by mindfulness um, actually work together to enable, enable a, a mindfulness practitioner to actually get in touch with the good things in their life and to actually become more sensitive to the, to the pleasure and the, and the meaning that they can derive from, from positive experiences in everyday life. And so um, I put forth both of those hypotheses and um, the, those are both pretty different than the, than the existing models that were out there of what mindfulness was and what it could do for patients. But I, but I thought that they had really important clinical utility in building an intervention to treat addiction. And it um, tur- turns out it looks like I was right. After, after a decade of clinical trials and mechanistic studies in this area, it does in fact seem that my, that mindfulness promotes both reappraisal and savoring and that savoring in particular is really important. Uh, it's a really important process in addiction recovery. Yeah,
0: I think, I think savoring is really still undervalued in, in the field as a, as a kind of a skill, if you will, to help promote you know just overall psychological well-being but also um as you allude to barbara Fredrickson's work on like the undoing process for instance right which is the idea that like by enhancing positive emotional states it kind of undermines co-occurring negative feeling states right so the, it reduces the intensity of co-occurring negative feelings that's right which which are pr- super prominent in early recovery um and often a reason why people use right and so the idea that you could cultivate positive emotion outside of a substance use context that would be reliable right reproducible right um just has such inherent important qualities of uh, to to advance recovery and so i think I, I think it still probably doesn't get the juice it deserves but i think um i think it, it is now coming on the scene i think really um as such an important aspect of both your work and just in general processes in, in addiction recovery
2: yeah I, I obviously I agree <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah I mean it really if seeing that seeing the, the the allostatic model which really should be informative to us as, as both as um, from a clinical perspective but also as scientists that that there is this progressive, process in which the person becomes less sensitive to natural healthy pleasure and so they're they're scrambling to find a way to fill that hole you know there's there's just an empty void and so they're taking higher and higher drug doses of the drug just to feel okay I mean that's to me that's pretty instructive then in terms of what what is our task as as an addiction therapist I mean our, our core task then is really to reverse that process by teaching our patients how to, how to increase sensitivity to natural, healthy reward, that should then reduce the pull of drug-related rewards and thereby decrease craving and addictive behavior. And that's, I, that is what I call my restructuring reward hypothesis. And, um, and I've, you know, I've tested it many ways over, over the past number of years. And it's, it almost seems like every time I look, I, find I, I can find support for it. Um, and, and given the number of times that I've, I've sort of replicated this effect, maybe it's actually real. Imagine that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, so this, this overall goal of like increasing sensitivity to natural reward reward, and, you know, I'm I'm in the field of behavioral economics. So it's also increasing availability and access to those natural rewards as well. Um, I, I mean, that, that is a great goal and I love the, the sort of, combination and and uh, you know intertwining of all of these different theories um, you know because a lot of times we're so siloed and we've got all these different sort of approaches but but that don't actually speak to one another it sounds like um, you've done a lot of integrative um, uh, you know theoretical work here um, but one thing that you brought up just now that um, I think is I think is important um, to to sort of define right now is that there there have been different definitions of mindfulness. Um, there have been different approaches to mindfulness. So could you give us a little bit of like a spiel about, you know, how how you define mindfulness and and what your approach is like in the room with the client? Uh,
2: I can, but I actually want to go back to something you said a moment ago, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is, you were talking about Behavioral economics and the importance of the the availability of, of the reward, um, which I, I agree with that. But this is where mindfulness plays such an important role in the process. You know, think think for example uh, of a of a person with major depressive disorder, um, and they're at a party. So they're they're in a room. There's a bunch of of interesting, hopefully, if they're lucky, a bunch of interesting, nice people. <laughs> you know, maybe there's there's delicious food on the table. You know, maybe there's some some great music playing on in the background. But so they're in the presence of all of these uh, rewarding objects and, and events. But if they're really deeply depressed, they're stuck inside themselves. They're ruminating. They're they're uh, they're not attending to the world around them. In fact, they're lost in their own suffering, in their own mind. So even though the, the positive reinforcers are available, they're not attending to them because of the cognitive biases that uh, that are just part and parcel of, of, of the depressed mind state, right? They've got a negative attentional bias, etc. They've got their filters on. So that's one of a really important way in which mindfulness can promote savoring, can foster psychological contact with rewarding objects and events because mindfulness helps us to suspend, first of all, to become aware when we're experiencing these automatic cognitive biases and then to disrupt the automatic cognitive bias and, and allow allow the person to shift their attention away from their own ruminations and actually refocus on the conversation they're having with that nice person across the room or to actually taste the delicious food that they're putting into their mouth, instead of just thinking about how much of a horrible person they are, or to hear the music, and to and to feel the way that music affects their body, um, and maybe even feel a, a small sense of of pleasure um, in, in hearing a song that they used to love, for example. So, so these are ways in which mindfulness actually can can uh, facilitate the person to actually make the most out of their experience in everyday life and in a way that simple behavioral activation can't. So um, now to answer your question about the definition of mindfulness, I mean, I I define it, I I think I define it the same way that that most people do in the field, which is um, mindfulness is, is a process of present focused attention without uh, clinging to one's judgments about the situation, but instead metacognitively monitoring the arising of moment-to-moment thoughts, emotions, and body sensations, and viewing those experiences uh, from this this, this vantage point of meta-awareness, viewing them almost as if you were a witness or an observer of your experience. That, la- that last piece, the aspect of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness as meta-awareness, not just non-judgmental acceptance of pro- present moment experience, but actually the capacity of the mind to step back and to witness experience with the psychological distance, I, I think actually is, is one of the key therapeutic mechanisms of mindfulness that, that is driving a lot of the treatment effects that we see. So, uh, so you asked me, you know, how do I teach patients this? Um, it, it, it's typical, so in, in mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement, we teach a, a mindful breathing technique where the, in the beginning of the technique, we're, we're having the patient focus attention on breathing, notice mind wandering, when, when mind wandering occurs, uh, acknowledge and accept the wandering and then bring the attention back to the breath and sort of traditional mindful breathing. But after multiple iterations of this, we then invite the, the patient to recognize that all mental experiences are are coming and going like clouds passing in a clear blue sky. And they can notice the the uh, transitory nature of thoughts and emotions and sensations coming and going and changing, but they can also attend to the field of consciousness in which the thoughts and feelings and sensations arise. And, and we do that by, by invoking this metaphor. You know, there's a part of the mind that's like thoughts that's passing like clouds, but there's a deeper part of the mind that is more like the space in which the clouds pass, the observing awareness.
0: Hmm.
2: And we give adjectives to describe it. It's open, it's vast, it's clear, it's spotless, it's stainless, it's free. And then we tell the patient you can focus and you can focus on your breath, but you could also focus on this space, this aspect of the mind that is more like the space in which experiences arise. Which is which is a traditional uh, mindfulness technique that that relates to the way mindfulness is taught, for example, in some Tibetan Buddhist traditions, hmm. um, and it's it's typically considered more of an advanced technique of mindfulness. But our but what we find is that even novices and people with pretty complex intersecting substance use disorders and psychiatric disorders, um, oftentimes can get tastes of this experience of, of deep meta-awareness and these, these tastes in which oftentimes the person actually has a self-transcendent experience are, are highly therapeutic and are correlated with, um, a lot of the positive outcomes that we see from mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like there's a few words for it. I think, um, right. Like this observer self, or I think Hayes calls it like self is context. Right. Right. The idea that, um, this ve- you are a vessel in which these experiences happen, a context in which it happened. I always like that. I always like to talk to clients like, like, so how do you know you're having a thought? Like what happens? And then like, so there's that. And then what's the thing that noticed having the thought? Well, it's that Right. Like, and just kind of like have like the metacognitive conversation about like, there's like, there's thoughts. Right. And then there's something else, which is you. Right. right? And that you're separate from that.
2: Right. Who you are, who you truly are is bigger than any one thought or feeling.
0: Exactly. I've changed my mind on several things over my life. Right. And, and that, that hasn't necessarily, some have changed my life and some haven't. Right. Like I, I used to like this dish and now I don't, you know, doesn't change my life per se, but, but it does. Uh, all happen within me. Right. And, 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 that, that there's an unchanging thing that exists beyond it, that we can connect to that allows us to, you know, see, put the struggles in context, right. As, as you've kind of alluded to here, which I think is really important um, especially for recovery. When you have a lot of, you know, many people have a lot of really negative experiences that have happened that they're trying to cope with uh, or overcome, that's right. And the idea that you can place those in, in a, you know, kind of do some alchemy to it, if you will, to use a metaphor where you can kind of convert this thing that seemed, you know, worthless into solid gold. Right? right.
2: Or, or to use the, the, the term from, again, from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, basic goodness. Mm. That they're fundamentally the, the one of the characteristics of consciousness Is basic goodness, and so getting people to tap into this part of themselves that's underneath everything, that's underneath all of the shit in their lives, (laughs) and all of the pain, um, that there is an aspect of existence which is basic goodness, and that that notion, you know, then ties back in not only not only weaves together the positive psychology thread, but it ties back into the neuroscience thread as well, right? That there's some at some level. Just being alive has value. At some level, existence is rewarding. And it really is, if you think about it. I mean, because bottom line is, it's better than being dead, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's very, you know, that's very primordially organismic as well, right? You know, even single cell organisms, right? They're motivated to preserve their own survival. And even in very simple organisms, the dopamine pathways are operating um, to to motivate the organism to eat and escape pain and reproduce itself. So just basic existence at at the most fundamental level involves reward. But we, we lose the ability to experience that basic goodness. Um, through, our, through life experience and certainly through both the cognitive biases that develop during um, the, the progression to addiction and all of the, and all of the emotional pain and psych, psychopathology that, that comes along with that. Um, and so what we're really trying to do in mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement is to help the patient to reclaim that sense of meaning and value from everyday life. Um, and and we, when, when we do that in, in different ways. You know, one of the ways is to teach people how to savor the, the small positive daily events that occur every day, you know, whether it's the smile of a passerby or you know, appreciating the song of a bird chirping in the tree or, or seeing little flowers growing up from the cracks in the sidewalk. But also so so learning how to experience how to savor and experience pleasure from from everyday positive events. But then there's this deeper level, right? Which is just savoring the basic sense of your own existence. Mm. Just savoring the comfort that comes from breathing slowly and knowing that you're alive. And and ultimately tapping into this this deeper level, as you said, to use that phrase, self as context. Or the phrase that we, or the phrase that uh, is used in the in multiple Asian traditions, non-dual awareness, when the subject and the object begin to unify, mm-hmm. or the term that we've been using lately in our papers, which is self-transcendence, connecting with something greater than the self, um, whatever you want to call it, that that, that state is. Is pregnant with reward. It's 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 full of reward. It's overflowing with reward, or at least we think. <laughs> uh, we probably need some data to, to prove that, but yeah. um, I, you know we've collected quite a bit of it. And uh, and anyway, that that's so that's that's a main emphasis in mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement. But so that's more is not only about that. So that's that's one one force. Uh, that, that we are exerting when we're, when we're helping people with mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. We also exert the countervailing force, which is we we're teaching people to uh, recognize when they're when they're being triggered by drug-related cues. We're teaching them to gain control over their attention to reduce the addiction attentional bias and we're teaching people to become aware of the arising of craving and then teaching them ways to regulate craving through mindfulness and, um, and cognitive techniques combined. So we're, so we're dampening craving and, and Q reactivity on the one hand and then on the other hand, we're, we're, we're helping to tune the mind towards sensitivity to natural reward and pleasure. And that combination seems to be pretty powerful. Yeah,
0: I would, I would say so. I mean, it definitely lines up, um, with just like my own personal work that, um, clearly postdates the work of this, but you know, that a lot of my work shows, you know, low positive affect is like this risk factor that just prevails all the different stages of, of the addiction cycle, right. That, you know, developmental maintenance interferes with treatment for young people, for teens, Um, And that, you know, it's associated with increased attentional bias to alcohol and drug-related cues and the attentional bias structure that exists due to the repeat pairings of cues in the environment with drug reward, right? And all of that stuff really lines up with, um, you know, stuff like out of my dissertation and things like that. And so um, this is, I think, a, a really compelling set of intersecting theories that really naturally spring forth like an intervention structure, that makes total sense to me, and I was wondering if maybe if you could walk us through a little bit about maybe the ses- session structure, about how it might sure. look, like you know, number of sessions, what are the stages, things like that.
2: Yeah, happy to. So, uh, the the version of more that we've been studying uh, most the most over the past number of years is an eight session treatment um, as a group therapy. Although there, mo- we we've, we've delivered more as an individual therapy, and now there are are two really large federally funded research studies to, to study more as an individual therapy. Um, all the studies that have been com- completed to date have been studying more as group therapy. Um, the groups are about two hours long. We've tested, we've, we've kind of messed around with the range of it. We've had groups as short as about an hour and a half, um, which is possible, but it creates a lot of time pressure on the therapist to run a, to run a group that short. Um, the session structure of each session is pretty similar, and but then there are variations in the theme from week to week. So every session begins with a mindfulness meditation exercise. After that mindfulness meditation practice, there's a portion of the session focused on processing the experience. And that's just super important. It's just exquisitely important in helping the patient to consolidate what they're what they've learned from the mindfulness practice and to generalize that learning to helping them to cope with their symptoms in everyday life and during that debrief um, we use a lot of a lot of tactics a lot of behavioral tactics um, shaping selective re- a lot of ton of reinforcement and selective reinforcement reframing uh, the therapist gets very phenomenological with the patient helps them to really break down their experience into into, um, into great detail to help help unearth therapeutic experiences that, that, that were arising during the mindfulness practice and to help the patient to really recognize that they had a success experience in that moment and to actually feel good about it, as well as uh, to create a roadmap for that patient and the other patients in the group to be able to recreate a similar type of therapeutic experience in the future. So there's a whole art to how we debrief and process mindfulness and more. And actually when I teach clinicians more, that's where we focus a lot of our attention is, is, is in that, in, in, that's where the magic happens. And so we teach people how to do that. Um, so after the debrief, then there's psychoeducational material delivered and then sessions end with some sort of experiential exercise, typically some sort of uh, mindfulness exercise to help kind of hammer home the point that we've been trying to teach. So, that's the, that's the same, that's the general session structure. But then, as the weeks go on, we're introducing different topics. So, in the beginning, we're talking about the impact of, of emotional pain and physical pain on addictive behavior. And so, we're helping the patient to under, to discriminate between the sensory aspects of that painful experience and then the impact of thoughts and emotions on the ultimate reaction to the stressor. Then, we're talk, then we talk about automaticity in addiction and how addiction becomes an automatic habit and how, how mindfulness is the natural solution to overcoming automatic habits. Then we introduce reappraisal as a technique for coping with negative emotions. Then we introduce savoring as a way to amplify positive emotions and the sense of reward. Then we, then we talk about mindfulness of craving, and then the impact of, of stress on craving. Uh, and then uh, nearing the end of the intervention, we focus on mindfulness as a pathway to developing meaning in life. And in particular, cultivating uh, awareness of interdependence, interconnectedness, and this sense of self-transcendence. And then finally, patients work on uh, building basically a a recovery plan. So how are they going to apply all the skills that they learn um, in the future when the intervention is done? That's the flow of the eight sessions.
1: Yeah, there's there's quite a bit going on in there uh, from from a lot of different sort of theoretical orientations, all sort of grounded in these mindfulness. Um, I also love the group aspect of this, right? I think it's something that's actually overlooked in a lot of of, um, of our treatments. Um, uh, but for a lot of things, I think there is a very social element of, of both the actual substance use, but then also uh, of recovery. Can can you talk a little bit about that? What you've experienced?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have two, two points. The first is that I agree with you and we, and more, we really leverage the power of the group to help to help to uh, teach the concepts and to reinforce the concepts. So, for example, if we teach a mindfulness technique, and there's a group of ten people, um, there's there's a couple people who really really got it and went really deeply and maybe achieved uh, powerful symptom relief in that session, and then there's some people who didn't experience anything at all, or, not, or maybe they didn't recognize any benefit. And then there's, there's a bunch of people in the middle who had you know, varying degrees of, of success uh, from that experience. But that's the perfect opportunity to leverage the power of the group. And so getting, getting the people who, who had this really therapeutic experience to talk in detail about what they experienced, the steps they took in their mind to achieve that positive outcome um, can actually provide a roadmap for the other patients who maybe didn't experience something like that. And of course it's one thing for me as the therapist to tell to tell a patient, you know, all you got to do is is steps one, two, three, and you'll be, and you'll be better and, and trust me, this is going to work for you. Um, but they're not going to necessarily believe it if it's coming from me. But if it's coming from their peer in the group, somebody that they think understands what, what they've been going through and has, has been living a similar, a similar life, um, it's so much more powerful to hear it coming from a peer. And that, and that helps to build this positive expectancy in the group that people believe that change is possible and, um, and that they can learn from each other. So that's a, that's a, real, that's, that's, that's a real advantage in, in, in using the group context in, in this form of therapy. Um, now, on the other hand, I want to play devil's advocate, which is, uh, although social support is really important, in every randomized control trial of more that I've conducted, my control group has been a, social, a supportive psychotherapy control condition. So people getting together in a group, the therapist um, raises topics for discussion, people in the group talk about it, the therapist guides the patients to connect with each other and to provide some emotional support to each other. And, and for people to express their feelings about the topics, and uh, and it's pretty clear that more is about twice as powerful as that. So it's clearly not
1: just social support. Uh, you, you've you've done a good job of, of controlling for that confound, and um, but you could also see how it definitely helps facilitate um, you know like the positive expectancies of change. And also to facilitate learning how to um, to do mindfulness, because in my experiences with mindfulness and in the groups that I've led, mindfulness is it's a pretty it, it, pretty idiosyncratic experience. Um, there there's a there's not really a, a set of instructions that you can follow that exactly map onto your experience as you're experiencing a state of mindfulness. And um, a lot of times, I think I what I've seen is, is, when a group member will actually share their experience of mindfulness, uh, share something that, that they did, it helps other people actually sort of explore a new way of, of playing with the thoughts that they, that, you know, that, that floated by in their mind um, as, as they were going through the exercise.
2: Exactly, exactly. That was exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, that's a real benefit to doing this in the group. And now that we've begun to study it as an individual therapy, I'm really curious as to whether it's going to be uh, as effective. It's possible it might be more effective, but it's possible that it might be less effective. It'll be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important empirical question. And I think I could see benefits both ways, right? Like as we've already kind of alluded to here, I think, you know, we're social creatures and so there's an inherent value in kind of getting us together and, um in 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 learning from different approaches to it, right like uh, sometimes you know other patients have the best explanation that I could have ever thought of for a thing that I've been trying to explain for years, right, and they just like deliver it and show it and demonstrate it in a way that's like, thank you, I'm gonna say it that way now, and also everybody that was here today was benefited by that experience right and uh, and there's also I think some downside to the idea that like um you know, mini groups are designed to be sequential, and so there's not a rolling admission component to it. So people are delayed right. in in joining the group where that's not true for individual. And so is is that true for more? Is it is it designed to be sequential and such such it wouldn't be kind of rolling admission?
2: Absolutely, and that's that's definitely one of the challenges in, in delivering more. Uh, the way that we've we've dealt with it in our in our research trials um, in recent years is to provide makeup sessions for people who miss sessions so they Mm. sort of caught up on the content um and that 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 that's helped a lot but you know whether or not that's feasible in a a clinical context where you only get x number of sessions to help a patient you know maybe not individual makeup sessions individual makeup sessions or or group makeup sessions whatever whatever we can accommodate
1: at the time yeah
0: yeah i mean I mean, that probably makes sense for us to, to naturally emerge as like, what if we did it as an individual therapy? Right. And so I, I could see why, you know, for a lot of reasons, why that would be an important empirical question, if it pertains efficacy and so forth. Um, and, and since we're talking about that, I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a little bit of details around some of the f- effectiveness, efficacy data um, for more as, as it stands today.
2: Sure. Um, <clears throat> so most of the most of the studies that I've conducted on more have been focused on uh, populations of people with chronic pain who misuse opioids. So that's, that's really been the focus of most of this work in, for the past 10 years. I've, there have been other studies of, of more in, in patients with substance use disorders who don't have pain, um, but the, the bulk of the work has been focused on on the opioid misuse problem. And um, and there we, we've conducted Four trials to date, and uh, in total, these trials involve nearly 500 patients. And across the trials, we found that more decreased opioid misuse significantly decreases opioid craving, distress, um, and pain, and that these effects are maintained uh, for, for quite a long time. So actually, what I'm gonna focus in on now to answer your question is is the largest trial of MORE to date, I just recently completed it. It was a five-year R01 funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And in this trial, there were 250 people with chronic pain who uh, were misusing opioids at baseline. And uh, participants were randomized to receive eight weeks of more, or eight weeks of of a supportive group psychotherapy control condition. And as you might expect in this kind of population, there were really high, high levels of psychiatric comorbidity in the sample. So there's a lot of depression, PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder. And, and 62% of the participants also met criteria for full opioid use disorder. Um, and these folks had pretty severe pain, and they've been in pain for about 15 years on average. And they were taking high, high doses of opioids at baseline, so about 100, 100 milligrams of morphine a day. So it was a pretty, pretty clinically complex population, not to mention that there, were, there was a lot of poverty in this sample too and um, trauma and all, all the social problems that, that come along with opioid misuse and, and pain. And it, in, in summary, more had massive effects on reducing opioid misuse. So it reduced opioid misuse by 46% by the nine month follow-up point compared to a 22% reduction in the, in the control condition. So it was basically doubling the effect of, of support psychotherapy and these effects were maintained nine months after the end of the treatment. Um, and at the same time, patients were able to cut their opioid dose quite a bit. So 36% of the patients in the Moore group were able to cut their opioid dose in half or greater by the nine-month follow-up point. And that was pretty amazing to us because we didn't push people to cut their opioid dose. They, they just they, they did this on their own accord, and learning the skills and more. They sort of self-initiated this, this reduction in the dose. Um, and then we had long-term effects on pain as well, um, with decreases in pain intensity and in, in, in physical impairment um, resulting from pain. And, and, uh, and these effects were maintained by the nine-month follow-up point. And we actually were larger in size and the effect sizes that you typically see for chronic, for CBT as a treatment for chronic pain. So the outcomes are really, really amazing. And, uh, and there were also an array of positive psychological effects too. So more significantly improved, improved positive affect and the effects lasted nine months after the end of the therapy, uh, which was just really, really made, really made me happy to see that. I mean, it it, mm-hmm. should, it showed me that more was just making people into happier people in general. And this was trait positive affect that... that, that so they, they became happier people and they stayed happier uh, nearly a year later. And also more significantly enhanced meaning in life. So people felt that their life had more purpose and um, felt a greater sense of meaningfulness. Uh, and that, that effect also maintained through the nine month follow-up point. So. Results are really, really fantastic, and they they clearly demonstrate that more is an efficacious treatment for opioid misuse in people with chronic pain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sounds like a huge success. Do you have any plans to see how this uh, could be used in other uh, substance using populations? Like, you know, opioid use I think is it's, it's been a difficult thing over the past couple decades to actually find effective treatments for, aside from, you know, medication assisted uh, treatments. And so you kind of picked a, a strong sample to start with, I guess, to prove your effect. But do, do you have any plans to move into other substance using populations?
2: It's a great question. Yeah, right now we, we have uh, an R01 from NIDA to look at the effects of more in smoking uh, mm-hmm. with, with, and with a real focus on, uh Elucidating the neural mechanisms of the treatment, so we're doing some fMRI really to test this restructuring reward hypothesis uh, to see if moore is modulating reward circuitry function in response to natural healthy rewards, and if that will that will explain Moore's effects on reducing smoking. So that that study is, is ongoing now. Um, we're not we won't have results for a number of years yet, um, and uh, and. Yes. I mean, I think I'm very interested in studying the applications of more for the treatment of other substance use disorders. Um, whether I do that work or I do that work with somebody else, maybe you guys will do that work. Um, I'd love to see it happen. The very I'm definitely first... interested. Cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah I, th- I see, I see it has applications for a lot of things, but the one that I think it think really, um, would be interesting is with, with teens, Yeah. Mm. Uh, just because these skills don't just undercut psychopathology, but promote overall well being, right? And the idea that we could teach teens at risk, already experiencing problems, or any of those things to, to cultivate these skills to then confer in them, you know, this emotion, positive emotional literacy, and the ability to kind of cultivate meaning and positive reward from whatever context they find themselves in would create some really impervious, positive effects on these teens lives. um, many of which live in reinforcement deserts, right. That like the idea that like, there's not, you know, if we could teach them to see all the small things that are everywhere in our everyday lives and to weaponize those for my personal benefit, um, I think just has such, downstream effects on adulthood and, and, in many different facets, whether they have psychopathology or not.
2: Totally agree. And that, that reminds me of, uh, that reminds me of two stories I'm going to tell you. So the first, <laughs> first is, is from my clinical work, working with teenagers uh, in wilderness therapy.
0: Yeah. That's what I thought too. <laughs> where I really,
2: I really cut my teeth on all of this. And, and I, I don't think I mentioned, but my, uh, after I got my MSW, I worked as a wilderness therapist for a few years. And that was really where I started cutting my teeth as a clinician and figuring out how to weave together some of these skills, including mindfulness. And so uh, I was able to to really get the kids interested. You know, these were kids with with drug histories and whatever, you know, rough backgrounds and delinquents, et cetera. So I'd say to them, hey man, I know a way you can get high. And they say, what? You know how I can get high? I say, yeah, I can teach you how to get high using your own mind. And I and that was a pretty good selling point for getting somebody interested in mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And you know that 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 was just my 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 trick to, to get buy-in with, with with these kids, but that is still a, a framing that I have in my mind that is embedded deep within more, which is we're teaching people how to actually make themselves feel good naturally. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, what, what, what could possibly be more therapeutic than that for, for this population? But then the second story I wanna tell you is a story about the Dalai Lama. So I, I once was, so I'm a, I'm a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, which is the world's premier scientific organization for the study of, of mindfulness and contemplative practices. And it was started by the Dalai Lama, and uh, and a, a neuroscientist named Francisco Varela. But what I was at a, a board meeting of the Mind and Life Institute uh, once, and and it was a very it was a small meeting, and the, and the and the Dalai Lama was there, and there was about twenty people in the crowd, and they were asking the Dalai Lama what. Uh, what direction the Mind and Life Institute should take in, it, in, its, focus, in its research focus. <clears throat> and somebody asked him, should Mind and Life be studying treatments for addiction? And he, this was his answer. He said, addiction? He said, you want to treat addiction? You need to teach kids mindfulness in school so they never become addicted in the first place. So just supporting straight, straight from the Dalai
1: Lama's mouth. Yeah. straight from the Dalai Lama. And I mean, you know, I, I thinking about, I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense because how many times I think like, you know, we are all people trained clinically. Um, and, and, uh, how many times have you as an adult, like realized something about, you know, Oh my goodness, every time I do this, this specific thought comes up and this has been happening for decades. And I had no idea that that was having an impact, you know, on my life, or I just now recognize like what this emotion is and like when it's coming up and why it's coming up Um, or what this physical sensation is. And imagine if you were given those tools Mm -hmm. as, as a teenager to start understanding how to search for those things and understand how those things were actually affecting how you interact with your world. Um, I think that would be, that would be game-changing.
0: Yeah, I think of it as a positive youth kind of development intervention or even like just emotional literacy, like how to read them, know what they are, where their origin stories, what are their outputs, you know, like emotion differentiation, the ability to link them to cause and effect, how to replicate them, the ones you want, how to, you know, sidestep the ones that get you stuck you know, all that stuff would just be so valuable, and and, and it's embedded, right? In in part, at least, in more, um, and and uh, really excited uh, to for the future uh, of more as, as as it applies to all these different kind of other avenues. And so, I, I think I could not uh, thank you more for kind of putting some a lot of these thoughts together um, and kind of weaving together these different models, which should be speaking to each other, frankly, that oftentimes have not, but when you present them the way you've discussed here, like just makes so much sense to me, right? Like allostasis, right? Like the cognitive model stuff, positive and negative reinforcement models, right? Um, but also like the automaticity models, right? Like some of the implicit bias models are also integrated here meaningfully, right? It ties together things that are often taught as like different lectures in some addiction class that I'm going to teach later this week, right? And but but here are synergized. That's literally a thing I have to do on Friday. Uh, so the synergized in a meaningful way uh, to help us not think of these as disparate, but instead as integrated parts of a single human that inform how we should, you know, make a plan to change.
2: Uh, Yeah. Thank you for that. And, And, yeah, it's, it's not rocket science. And in fact, I think, I think this, the more, the more program is a structured systematic way of, of practicing therapy that I think a lot of therapists are doing naturally informally on their own, just kind of, Sticking things together, maybe maybe not in in with a clear conceptual framework. Um, so, in more really, what I did is try to unify those pieces into a clear conceptual framework and then build a program around it. Uh, but but it really, I think it's just taking kind of the best the best pieces from cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology and mindfulness practice and, and weaving it in, into a coherent system. Um, because really, in my mind, these things are not, they're not incompatible. In fact, they're highly compatible. And this is, this is just what it means to do good, good addiction therapy, good addiction mm-hmm.
1: treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, um, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to learn, to learn more about it, um, uh, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And, um, to, to hear sort of what direction you're going in. So thank you so much, Eric, for spending some time with us. Um, If it's okay. We're going to shift to the take-home messages. Um, awesome. So what do you think the take-home message should be for people who are in recovery or, you know, are kind of interested in making a change? Well, and
2: I'm going to give you the take-home message, but It's gonna it's gonna be infused with a little bit of research. So if that's okay.
1: That's exactly what we
2: want. Yeah. Yeah. What I didn't talk about was was the the neuroscience that I've done. And just to sum it up really simply, what we've shown is that by teaching people how to savor, how to use mindfulness to to focus on the good in their lives and to savor natural, healthy pleasure, the brain and the body actually become more sensitive to natural healthy pleasure and the more mm. the more sensitive that the brain and the body become to natural healthy pleasure the less triggered by drugs you are and the less you crave drugs so the take-home message is um, you can you can reclaim the sense of reward and meaning from your everyday life by by focusing on what is beautiful, pleasant, life-affirming, and good, and that doing that actually has measurable changes on on addiction. It'll actually, it'll help you to recover.
0: Outstanding. What would you say uh, to practitioners out there listening?
2: Same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That works. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, what what would I say to practitioners? Let me see. Um, The possibility of change is ever present. And we know this not only clinically and and from our own experience, but we also know this from neuroscience, from the science of neuroplasticity, that uh, no matter how deeply entrenched somebody is in a substance use disorder, the brain can heal from that. And, and training the mind in techniques like mindfulness and reappraisal and savoring can actually help to heal the brain and help help your patient to recover. That's
1: great. What about policymakers? Take home for them.
2: Policymakers um, need to make you need to make mindfulness an insurance reimbursable service. Yeah. And accessible to people not only who have uh health insurance but even but just as importantly if not more importantly to people on medicaid mm. and the underserved you need to give people access to to psych, psychosocial therapies for addiction care there's a lot of emphasis particularly with the opioid crisis at, at, at the state level there's so much money put into naloxone programs, so much money put into you know o- opioid overdose uh, reversal, which is obviously important because it saves lives. But that's not an addictions treatment. We need to put money into actually helping people heal from addiction, to change their destructive behaviors, and and uh, figure out a way to to reclaim a meaningful life. And to what you guys pointed out, uh, actually build build, have access to and, and help build communities that are full of natural, healthy rewards Mm. um, and opportunity so that people won't, won't be, won't, won't feel the pull of addiction so strongly. Yeah.
1: And
0: that, that ties in right, really well with what our next question was, which was about, you know, underserved populations.
2: Yeah. I mean, what what I want to say there is that most of the studies that I've conducted over the past decade have been in populations of folks who are low income um, and 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 fo- and are experiencing uh, social a- and economic challenges. And even with even with folks from that background, they they really seem to benefit very well from more. We we just finished a study. Uh, a pilot study of more as an adjunct to methadone maintenance therapy in uh, inner city New Jersey in community methadone clinics, and um, the majority of those of those folks were low income and uh, African American or Latino, and they benefited hugely from more. Uh, the effects were really powerful and. Uh, and the, the buy-in was great. Uh, these, these, these folks, the adherence was, was higher than, than we see in, in many other populations. So I think, I think people who are vulnerable folks um, need, need support and are, and are open to it when they receive high quality evidence-based interventions. So we need to increase access.
1: Absolutely. Well, Eric, this has been awesome. One final question. Do you have any advice for trainees like myself and, and, and for others out there uh, to, uh, to to sort of
2: emulate your success? Well, I mean, I think think big. And what I mean by that is, is be an integrative thinker. Uh, interdisciplinarity has been my approach throughout my whole career. So I mean, you, you guys... Articulated it yourselves. I mean, you can see how I've drawn from different, different conceptual frameworks, different bodies of literature, and, and really that's been that's been my job as, as an integrator, bringing those together, <clears throat> and and really it's at the intersection of where the where different different traditions that haven't been talking together, um, when when you bring them together and start getting having them talk to each other, that's where the real richness emerges. Um, So that's one one piece of advice. And then I I would also my my other advice is is really to think mechanistically. If you're if you're going to be an intervention researcher, you really need to think mechanistically. Um, Because if you want to solve a problem, how can you solve a problem if you don't know what makes the problem tick? You've got to know what makes the problem tick in order to, to solve it. So to me, Mechanistic research and intervention research go completely hand in hand. They they inform one another. And then the last, my last piece of advice is uh, try to try to stay undeterred. It's it's really difficult. There's a lot a lot of failure in our field. Uh, I've I've experienced a ton of failure. So you know you guys say have been really successful. I've also been a big failure too, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, and learning how to pick yourself up again after that, and really to believe in believe in the ideas. If you if you vetted the ideas carefully, you've used data, and and, and your ideas are holding up, then <clears throat> when you get rejected, just brush it off. It's there's a lot of, uh, there's low inter reliability in our field. Never forget that. <laughs> so, just, so just pick yourself back up again. That's a great point. Pick yourself back up again. It's right. different yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, that's my advice. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thank you thank so you much.
2: Nice guys. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in in learning more about more, sorry for the bad pun, (laughs) I do train train clinicians and more, um, and this is a two-day training that since COVID, I've been doing over Zoom. So the next more training is October 15th and 16th, and it's going to be held over Zoom. Um, And it's a two-day training that combines didactic and also a lot of experiential work, practicing the skills and getting feedback on, on learning how to uh, integrate mindfulness and reappraisal and savoring into your practice.
0: Next time on the Addiction Psychologist, Dr. Hollis Carley will join us. Hollis is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Colorado State University and she's kindly agreed to join us to talk with us about CBD and her research on cannabinoid content in the context of alcohol and cannabis use. Don't miss this episode.